0: Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Over the past decade, the number of workers directly employed in the U.S. coal industry has fallen by half, as coal has been replaced by cheaper sources of energy, such as natural gas and renewable power. From the Appalachian Mountains in the east to the Powder River Basin and tribal communities in the west The continued decline of the coal industry has been devastating, depriving workers of livelihoods and towns of revenue to support essential services. Yet, coal communities often have a deep sense of place, and the drive to remain, reinvent, and rebuild is strong. On today's podcast, we'll take a look at what happens to coal dependent communities when the industries that sustain them leave. And we'll look at efforts of the same communities to find new paths of development and, it's hoped, create economically diverse and sustainable futures. My guest is Heidi Binko, Executive Director of the Just Transition Fund, which is an organization that provides access to funding and technical assistance for coal communities. Heidi will discuss the needs of these communities and offer a view of what tends to work and what doesn't when they transition away from a coal economy. Heidi, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Andy. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Now, you are the co-founder of the Just Transition Fund. Tell us how the fund began and about its mission.
1: Sure. Um, Let's see. Starting back probably around 2011 or 2012, I was having conversations with my colleagues in philanthropy about coal communities and the shuttering of coal mines and coal plants. And, and we were sort of looking around at the time and, and seeing that philanthropy was not really doing uh, much, if anything, to address what we saw as a huge economic problem that was coming in these places, right? So, uh, you know, we we knew that plants were going to close we knew that uh, direct jobs were going to be lost, but I think what the what what philanthropy didn't generally understand at the time is the the magnitude of the economic de- devastation. Right. So, in addition to the direct job loss, you usually have indirect job loss in these communities. Oftentimes, um, you know, there's communities that we work with where there can be a a, a coal fired power plant that closes. For every job you lose, you can lose sometimes three or four in the community. Right. Um, and then, in addition to the both the direct and the indirect. Job Job loss you get you have a huge impact on the tax pay on the tax base both coal plants and mines provide our big property tax and severance tax providers in these um, in these communities and so you know we work with with communities across the country where the coal plant is the biggest tax provider and when it has closed it, local governments lose anywhere between 70 and 80 percent of revenue so a really big economic problem no one in philanthropy really doing much to address it and so we were really paying attention to the issue. So we were we were following it, starting to do some organizing and philanthropy on it. And then we ended up um, deciding to start the fund in 2015 after President Obama announced his power program, which was the first time that federal funds were available to help whole communities in transition. And so we really jumped on the opportunity, right? We thought it's a good opportunity to not only engage philanthropy, but, you know, also show agencies like, like the Appalachian Regional Commission that there was a lot of innovation happening in these communities. So six found funders, six foundations band together. We provided, I think it was maybe $500,000 in, in seed funding and that launched the fund and we've been at it ever since.
0: Now, do you fund directly or do you work with other organizations to to provide funding to these communities?
1: We do two things. So we make direct grants and direct investments in these communities, and we also provide technical assistance. And so that technical assistance usually um, is in the form of a transition planning and strategy support that helps local leaders and local officials and community-based organizations. When they're stuck around a closure and they're not sure what to do, we help them plan and get started.
0: You know, um, when we think about coal communities, we think about the, the coal mines uh, being kind of the major employer for those communities. Is that always the case? And, you know, does that also extend to communities that are that are built around, say, coal-fired power plants?
1: It does. It does. And so when we started the fund, um, the, the we had the express mission of helping communities where either coal plants or coal mines had closed. And the reason why is even though, you know, there are some contextual differences, but the economic distress is is very very similar, right? And the way you go about addressing the problem is also very similar. And so, for that reason, you know, we were really thinking about the problem in terms of like an energy system, and we decided to uh, to address to address both of those. And you know, it's it's interesting that you you pull up the example of of coal mining because a lot of times um, people just assume that we work in Appalachia, and we have done a significant amount of work in Appalachia. And of course, you know, when people think about the traditional coal miner. They think of you know West Virginia, right? But that's not the case, right? Coal communities, broadly defined, it affects a lot of different people in a lot of different communities around the country. So we do a lot of work with tribal communities, Navajo and Hopi in Arizona, and then the the Crow in the Northern Cheyenne in Montana. We work with a lot of power plant communities throughout the Rust Belt. We work with coal mining communities in places like the Illinois Basin, Powder River Basin, Southwest Pennsylvania. So there's a a lot of different types of geographies uh, that are affected by by the problem.
0: And, and is the level of the stress for these communities the same across the country? I'm, I'm originally from Ohio, so when I think about the coal community Appalachia, uh, you know, immediately comes to mind. But are we seeing the same level of distress in the East, in the West? Is it everywhere?
1: Yes, it's, it's everywhere. And so, you know, just to give you an example, um, the, the coal problem in the United States was really big for us to tackle. Right. And so what we decided to do when we launched the fund is take a, uh, a data driven approach to identifying, to, to figuring out where we were going to work, right, um, that was really rooted in equity. And so what we did was launch this analysis to identify the communities that were economically hardest hit that had the most at-risk populations. We, we essentially wanted to go where the problem was the hardest, right? And so there's a couple things to think about um, when when you when you take a look at the, the level of, when you take a look at the results of the analysis. The first thing is that the problem is, it's a big problem for rural communities. Right. And that that makes sense, because these uh, these when these entities close, they're often the only the only game in town. And when they close, they have an outsized impact on the local economy. Right. And so that's one of the um, that's one of the uh, big you know sort of findings that that comes out. But in terms of your question about economic distress. It's pretty severe in a lot of places around the country, and there's not necessarily any rhyme nor reason, like you can't really say, oh, you know, Eastern places are impacted hard, but Western are not. Right. There's 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 high levels of distress everywhere. Uh, you know, look at the Navajo and Hopi. Right. Um, the Navajo generating station is a plant that closed uh, in Arizona and along with it, the resulting can mine closed. And when that closed, it took away 80 percent of the Hopi tribal nations budget and 25 percent of the Navajo nations budget. Right. I've got a, lots of examples like that. So it's it's a lot of distress for a lot of people in a pretty big ge- geographical area.
0: You know, I, I happened to to listen in on a conversation this past weekend uh, that, that really got to the heart of this. And there was a woman who was talking who was from Kentucky, from a coal mm-hmm. community. And she was talking about actually, this is very interesting, food deserts in these communities. There mm-hmm. weren't actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, food stores because... The coal companies had come into many of these communities that were once agricultural, had said, okay, we're going to set up mines. Everybody's going to work in the mines. We're going to provide everything you need from food to whatever it may be, I guess, through their own stores. So not only when, the, when the, the mines left, not only did those mines close, but a lot of the infrastructure to support everyday life went with them, as, as I understand
1: that's you know that's that's exactly right, and that that brings up a, a couple points that I think it's probably important for your your listeners to to know. You know the 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 first thing is that um, there is I think there's an idea out there, a meme if you will, that people think we're going to close down all the coal plants and we're going to you know we're going to turn on clean energy. And from an economic development and diversification standpoint, that is that is just simply not true, right? We we really need to think about. Uh, engaging um, about engaging all the different solutions that are available um people will say the experts that have been working on this for years will say there's no single single silver bullet and it's true right i mean just like you would diversify your financial portfolio to have a strong vibrant economy you need investment in a number of different sectors so that means like at the jtf we are we are looking at solutions in the sustainable agriculture sector right it gets at actually some of those those food issues that that she was talking about we're looking at solutions in the in the reclamation sector, the reclamation economy, knowledge sector economy. Right. Clean energy is, is absolutely important, but it's a piece. Right. So I think that's really important. I think that's really important to, to know.
0: I have one more contextual question for you. Uh, many industries have declined over the course of American history, and you know the, the steel industry is one prominent industry that that comes to mind. Is the coal community experience notably different from those industries that declined earlier?
1: It's different and it's the same. So let's first talk about how it's the same, right? And And I get asked this question a lot it's the same because during that you know 10 or 12 year period in the the mid 70s to the mid 80s when we saw the um you know all of those those steel industries and steel plants closing when they went away when those when those plants closed they left the communities devastated right so you see a lot of the same economic issues in coal communities as you did in steel communities right so so that is the same what is different about the coal community transition versus the the transition away from I don't I won't even say the transition away from steel. What's different from the coal community transition as compared to the closures of coal plants in the late 70s and early 80s? It, there's a few factors. So so first is geography, right? The closure of, of steel plants was pretty Isolated in a certain geography, right? Whereas when you talk about coal plants and coal mines in the United States, there's, you know, you're you're talking about about closures in like almost every state, right? I mean, in, in terms of coal plants, coal mines is different, but in coal plants, they are they are everywhere, right? So the problem, um, unlike timber steel tobacco paper any of those other transitions the the problem with coal is so ge- geo geogra- coal and energy is so geographically dispersed right that's one difference the second difference that we're dealing with today with with coal communities that you know community leaders in the in the 70s and 80s didn't have to deal with with steel is that today we're you know we're trying to combat the combat this existential threat of climate change right so there is a a big reason uh, to help figure out how we're going to transition away from these things, because we know that we cannot, you know, keep up with the same level of, of of carbon emissions that we've been having, right? So that changes the 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 game, right? And then I would say, lastly, is again, this is a difference from you know from from those closures till now. I think now you're seeing um, both the Biden administration and leaders all over the world really recognize the importance of just transition and the importance of making sure that these communities don't get left behind. And that also was not the case when you saw steel closures. You didn't see a lot of government investment coming in to help those places and those workers.
0: So let's talk about the issue of the transition uh, right now. And, and I want to point out some news that came out very recently. And it came from the United Mine Workers of America, which is the union that represents miners in this country. The union released in April a document called Preserving Coal Country, in which it states that the transition away from coal is clearly underway and that this transition has been very hard on coal communities. In the document, the union states that it is prepared to work with the Biden administration to support coal communities through efforts such as the development of clean energy, technologies like carbon capture and storage, and through economic aid for miners and mining communities. And I want to just take a moment here to read what's posted on the uh, United Mine Workers website. This is a passage from from the document that's actually uh, on, on the website itself. And it says the following, and here it is. Change is coming, whether we seek it or not. Too many inside and outside the coal fields have looked the other way when it comes to recognizing and addressing specifically what that change must be, but we can look away no longer. We must act while acting in a way that has real positive impact on the people who are most affected by this change. So Heidi, I'd like to get your thoughts on that, uh, since you've, you know, you've been involved with this for such a long time
1: yeah I mean, it's um you know the 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 workers and the the unionized unionized workers that are engaged. Uh, in these that are hired in these plants and in in mines have been so affected by by the problem. And I think that there is there's always a, a concern when it comes to to government intervention. There's a there's a worry that the government isn't going to do enough and they aren't going to do the, the right things. And, you know, we've seen we've, we've th- that bears out with experience, right? We've seen the government not do, um, you know, not not always had, have the best uh, answers right when it comes to these economic adjustments programs. And so, you know, I, I think that it's, um, it's, it's really important for, for these ideas to be heard. Uh, it's really important for unionized voices to be at the table, right. Um, and again, we we do I understand the the skepticism about how the federal government is is going to handle this. But, you know it's it's one of the reasons why we actually created our our national economic transition platform, where we worked with labor, we worked with economic justice, economic development, workforce development groups. Uh, all around the country to come together, recognizing that this is a problem that affects a lot of different people, right? It affects unionized workers. It affects non-unionized workers. It affects community members, right? It affects people that live near these sites, right? It's a big problem that is tough to deal with. And one of the first things that we always talk about that's the most important to do is to make sure that we engage community voices first and foremost. Um, And that's where we have, I think, a huge amount of overlap with the the UMWA.
0: Well, let's talk about that national economic transition platform, uh, which the Just Transition Fund developed with many stakeholders in and around the coal industry. As you've just kind of alluded to, each coal community has its own unique circumstances, and each coal community must find its own path forward. There's no real template for this. Can you tell us about the platform and how communities might begin to find their own particular path forward?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, just just to take a step back, you know, um, when when hillary clinton was was running for president she had a very ambitious 30 billion dollar plan for coal communities and their her her transition team i think was asking some very good questions of the field and we there was a number of us who were engaged back in transition at that time and we were thinking you know we want to be ready the next time the opportunity comes around and so that was the you know one of the ideas behind behind net the other, the other uh, sort of uh, galvanizing force, if you will, is our work with the Just Transition Fund over the last, you know, five, six, seven years. And by that, I mean, you know, I've already mentioned to you that we work in a lot of different types of communities, right? Um, Illinois Basin, we work with Navajo, Appalachia, you know, folks in Minnesota, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, you know, different different communities. And what has really stuck with me over the years is the fact that even though these communities are Um, You know, they need different things at the end of the day, there is still a considerable amount of overlap, right? High level similarities that really capture what they need to deal with the transition, right? And so what you know building on that we thought well what if we pull together local leaders from a number of different ge- geographical places from a number of different representing a number of different stakeholder groups what if we bring them together to articulate what is needed by the federal government for an ambitious new federal coal transition program right so think something like obama's power program but but something bigger more comprehensive that really addresses these these problems in a in a much in a much bigger way right and so that's essentially what we what we did so we launched our national economic transition platform Oh, in January of 2019, we um, it was almost a two year uh, engagement process. We held listening sessions in the regions. We had a big digital line, um, digital engagement process, and we had formed a, a planning team or a planning committee that was comprised of uh, labor economic development small business professionals people that ran cdfis workforce development professionals some environmental and economic justice groups right just a really good cross-section of people um, and we pulled them together to um, to draft the platform and to take all of that feedback and um and come out with the platform and release that and we we did that we released the platform in June of 2020 and essentially the the platform has seven tenants and you know without going into the, the details of the platform, um, you know, essentially what we called for is it's, it's calling for a combination of economic development and diversification, workforce and infrastructure supports, right, to really make sure that these communities have the investment that they need in key areas of infrastructure, right, to then, you know, go ahead and tackle the tackle the problem.
0: So to what extent does Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure proposal uh, align with the recommendations that are in the national economic transition platform? And, and is there anything that you'd like to see that's not there? I mean, does it, does it align with the recommendations?
1: It does. It does. There's there's a, a good amount of overlap. So um, one of the things that we asked for in the beginning was the creation of a of a task group, right, or a task force to look at the issue. And of course, with um, Biden's uh, executive order on January 27th, they created the interagency working group on coal uh, mines and power plant and economic revitalization to address the problems. That was a really good start, right? One of the other things that we felt really strongly about is to make sure that the people that are most affected by the problem, the local leaders who have already developed creative, innovative, and workforce solutions are really listened to. And the Biden administration has done a lot since the um, since the release of the executive order up until the release of the report, which just happened a couple of days ago, to start to listen to affected stakeholders, and within a couple of months they're going to be starting listening sessions. So that's a really good that's a really good a really good step. We're seeing um, we're seeing investments to create good union jobs, which we called for in the platform. We're seeing investments to to really um, enable communities to do the the longer term economic economic development, diversification that they need. Right. Because at the end of the day, this is really about strengthening local economies. Right. And then um, the other thing that I would say is really, really vitally important is the um, is we're seeing the Biden administration advocate for increased investment in infrastructure in these places. Right. And so uh, just to to name it briefly, you know, broadband, for example, broadband is one piece of infrastructure that these communities need, but they've also suffered from, you know, decades of of underinvestment in other other critical areas of, of infrastructure like education and health, right? So it's just one of those problems where all of these issues are tied up together. And it's really hard to focus on strengthening a local economy if you don't have broadband access, if you don't have healthy people, right? And if you don't have schools where people can be educated. So it's a tough it's a tough nut to crack, but they really recognize that. And I think that's a, a really important start.
0: As you just mentioned, there are many redevelopment and employment solutions that have been proposed, either in the Biden plan, in your plan. And this has actually been a conversation that's been going on for quite a number of years now. These can include work in land reclamation, development of clean energy, and also you often hear about retraining for tech jobs, and that's often gotten a black eye. People said, you know, that's not really adequate or appropriate for many of these communities how do you know what transition options or strategies are really viable or a good fit for a given community?
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think it, it really all starts with looking at the assets of a place, right? The solutions that we invest in are all, uh, are all place based strategies right meaning that the local community local leaders have have taken a look and they've said what is it about our local economy our local region what assets do we have here that we can build on right you know and and then and then going from there right so you know when you think about like clean energy for example uh you know clean energy is is always a piece right not the only piece but it's always a piece in a place like eastern kentucky it's going to be solar energy in a place like wyoming it's going to be wind right and again, where does that stem from? That stems from the assets of a place, right? Um, one of the uh, one of the the sectors that I, I'm really excited about is investment in reclamation and remediation, and that's a really interesting strategy because you have um, you have often former power plant or coal miner workers who have the skill sets needed to do those cleanup jobs, right? And what's interesting about jobs in that sector is that people can be put immediately to work and they're nice, almost like a bridge, a bridge job, if you will, to those longer term economic development and diversification strategies that are often needed. Right. Um, and then, you know, the the last thing that I'll say is, you know, tech jobs. I, I hear that. I hear that a lot. Right. That's been kind of a famous sort of meme. Right. You know, like, what are we going to do? Just, you know, train uh, former coal miners to code. Right. And I think it's it's left off sometime. But What I think we also need to think about is the growing promise of the knowledge economy. And we need to think about how we define and bound the problem. And if we're going to truly address this problem, yes, we're taking care of the workers of today, but we're also thinking about what's going to work in those communities for the next 10 20 30 40 years right you don't you don't just plan for 2 years right you plan for the situation that you want 30 you know 20 30 years from now right so to the extent that we are also thinking about about the next generation tech solutions are a really viable alternative, right? Now, they're not a viable alternative when you have a, a workforce or, you know, workers that are maybe nearing retirement anyway, right? I mean, that's not a realistic solution to take somebody who's 55 or 60 and, and try to, and they've been doing the same job their whole life and, and try to reskill them, right? With something as different as that. But I think depending on the context, it absolutely can, can work. And, you know, going back to my point earlier, there really is no silver bullet. So we really have to think about, who are we trying to help? What are the assets of a place? And how can we, you know, how can we really invest in a range of different solutions to get the local economy uh, vibrant and in, in working?
0: Well, it's interesting what you said about broadband internet access. Uh, if you're looking for jobs of the future in any type of industry, that access really is critical. So so you're saying that uh, that, that is one of the components of what's going to be needed to be provided to these communities uh, to give them a path forward
1: absolutely. And I think people don't think about that, right? but if you if you just think about it for a minute, right? So you know we all know that um, the 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 FCC data is, is not, enti- is not entirely accurate, right? So they they overestimate how many people have good internet coverage, right? When we see companies like Microsoft saying, "Oh, you know, roughly fifty percent of Americans don't have good um, access to internet," right? When you take a look at transitioning coal communities, which are primarily rural, again, right? You just you can see what a what a significant problem this is. So in West Virginia, for example, sixty percent of households don't have good access, right? In places places like, you know, in tribal communities, the the statistics are even worse, right? So if you think about this on a fundamental level, if you don't have good internet access, right, and it becomes both a problem of accessibility and affordability, right, so it's sort of a two-pronged problem, but if you can't, if you don't have good broadband access, you cannot do economic development, right? People, businesses don't go where there's no access, right? Um, inequities are only compounded, right? Because people can't access Teladocs, kids can't go to school. Also, you know, entrepreneurs or, or people can't, they not only can't do remote work, they can't even start their own businesses if they wanted to do that, right? So, you know, again, inequities are compounded. You can see the social and health indicators get worse in communities, right? And then finally, and I think this is, you know, a, a note for for people that are working on, on climate change and philanthropists, with such a significant portion of our country having problems with with connectivity, how are we ever going to implement Clean Energy 2.0 solutions, which, which depend on, on a smart grid, if we've got this problem, right? So, you know, again, not saying that it's a silver bullet, right, because we know there aren't any, but... It's a pretty fundamental barrier to a range of of problems, economic development, equity, and climate, which really gets at the heart of you know of this issue for for transitioning communities. So I'd say it's really important,
0: you know, I, I can't help but note that underwriting this whole conversation we're having here is is the idea of place and the importance of place and the importance of maintaining these communities even as they evolve, having them move on, right? Uh, And place is so important to these communities, as I think we've touched on earlier. Um, Can you tell us why, and, and it may seem obvious, but why place is so critically important to these communities and why, as some might suggest, people should just get up and find jobs in other places, why that really isn't the right option for many people in many communities?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I I hear I often hear that quite a lot. And it's really frustrating to to community members, right? Uh, When when the idea, when the solutions that are proposed are sort of along the lines of, let's just pay for them to have a bus ticket out of here, right? I mean, these are people that are have been, you know, they have lived on the land for generations. They're, you know, they the their their families have been there for for generations. I mean, look at tribal nations, right? That's, you know, they they've been they have a connection to the land that goes back thousands of years, right? And so it's really hard to leave a community when you've lived there your whole life, right? Your grandmother lives there. Your kids are going to school there. It's the only home you've known, right? We shouldn't be treating our, our, our people like that, right? I mean, we we should be thinking about how to help them stay. And, you know, it's not the right answer for everybody. Some people want to leave and that's fine. But, you know, the most of the communities that we speak with, when these issues come up, people are just Really attached to where they grew up, whether it be the Midwest or, you know, Eastern Kentucky or, you know, the, the, the reservation, wherever, wherever it is, there's, there's often a very strong tie to that place, you know, and it, it really makes, it really makes sense, um, that, that they want to stay. I mean, I would want to, right. I wouldn't want to leave. I understand.
0: What are the preconditions that might exist in a community that makes, uh, that make a successful transition likely?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most important things is, well, you know, let me take a step back. We work with a lot of communities where, again, we provide grants and we provide technical assistance. And we've learned over the years that the communities that experience the best outcomes are the communities that move quickly away from denial of the problem, right? To an acceptance of the problem and then a willingness to act, right? So the best outcomes happen when people engage and plan early, right? There's a number of examples of that around the country. Um, We worked with a community group in Tonawanda, New York that was working to engage the community and develop a plan, you know, years before the coal plant closed, right? today they have um, the the plan shut down but they were able to help all the workers in the in you know in the plant find other work they developed a long-term economic development and diversification plan that they're implementing and they were even able to help the state of New York um get or i should say advocate for the state of new york to develop a state legislative solution that would provide um sort of like a backstop or tax-based replacement to communities where power plants are closing so again sitting you know sitting in in, in denial of these changes you know which are happening is is just is really, really critical, right? And then I think the other important piece is having having local leadership, right? There have been places around the country. You know, I mentioned to you, we sort of did that analysis to see who's hardest hit. And there are a couple of places that we would have loved to to do work in. but you know, once we went in and and really tried to to meet local people and understand what was there, there wasn't near necessarily a um, a, a community based organization or the right kind of local capacity or local leadership, and that's the other thing you need, right? You need to have a person, a number of people that are willing to to you know bring all the different stakeholders to the table to to try to figure out, you know what do we want to do here and what's what's coming next. Without either of those th- two things, it's really difficult, I think, to to have success.
0: You know, so you have new industries and businesses that can be developed locally as as one part of the solution. And I think there's also an assumption here or hope here that industries from the outside will move in. So I want to ask you quite directly, what is the value proposition for industry and the private sector to get involved and to move into these transitioning communities? what makes it a particularly good opportunity, for example, for these industries to create new jobs and, and local business?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, There's a business case for these companies to be sure. Right. So um, we speak a lot with community, with uh, companies that have pledged, to source 100% of their energy from renewable energy sources, right? So one of the first things that we say to them, you know, we're thrilled to see their, their climate pledges, right? But one of the first things we say is, okay, well, why don't you think about sourcing your energy from transitioning communities, right? Um, you know, help help the communities that have, been, that have been hit the hardest, right? That's one type of, of solution. But in terms of a, of a business case, right, there's, you know, just maybe taking a step back about maybe if I could say for a minute why the private sector is important and then I want to answer your question. This is such a big problem, right? W- you and I have talked a lot about here. We, well, we've talked a little bit about philanthropic investment, right? We've talked a lot about uh, public sector, federal government investment, right? But the truth of the matter is that we're also going to need the private sector to address this, right? It's a big problem. And the, what the private sector can do in these communities really can dwarf what philanthropy in the, in the federal government can do, right? So when I talk with them, I think about the business case, right? So we're working with a really interesting organization in Southern West Virginia called Generation West Virginia. And they've got a couple of different programs that... They've they're sort of um almost like merging now, if you will, to talk about solutions that that could be scaled. And they've got this, this one of their programs is they connect uh talented young West Virginians with jobs with employers around the state, right? And they're thinking of, of making that available to or trying to work with companies outside of West Virginia who want to help provide jobs to west virginians right they also have another program that 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 often works in conjunction with that with that program which is training young people for jobs in the tech sector right so if you sort of take both of those those programs and you think about like the amazons the microsofts the facebooks you know the um you know the 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 googles of the, of the world right we've just gone through this giant covid experiment where we've been able to see that remote work works, right? And so why not, why not provide jobs or create jobs in places, and in rural communities and transitioning places where land is cheaper, labor is cheaper, right? If you're thinking about addressing climate change, you're thinking about giving jobs to transitioning areas, right? I mean, there's a business case there. There's, you know, there's a There's a a reputational um, benefit there, right? Um, There's, there's, you know, if, if you can also think about equity, right? A lot of these communities are are already economic distressed and low income, right? So in this day, as we're thinking about who has suffered from, you know, who's been left behind, these communities are really at the, at the top of the list. So again, that's the argument that we make to to companies about why they can invest. And, you know, again, there's other strategies like sourcing their energy from these places that are also, also very viable.
0: One of the other questions that comes up is is, will these industries pay at the same level that the coal industry has paid? coal industry jobs are relatively well-paid. Uh, can we expect that level of income from these new industries?
1: Yeah, and I think that's impossible to say, but it's definitely a, a, a conversation that people are, you know, that are, people are raising, right? I mean, one of the big, um, one of the big uh, criticisms, if you will, about like clean energy jobs is that they're not as well paid. they're not union they're not unionized, right? Like some of these coal jobs were. And you know, and that's that's a real issue. You we need to make sure that people can earn a living, you know a living wage, a family sustaining wage, right? Um, so that's definitely something that has to be addressed.
0: And these reclamation jobs, uh, jumping back for a moment, these are jobs that sound like they'll, they'll last for quite a few years, but eventually all the gas wells will be capped and, and the mines will be cleaned up. Is that a sort of bridge that gives time for more long-term industries to, to then come in?
1: Yes, yes, yes. That's exactly the idea. Right. So, of course, the amount of of remediation or reclamation is going to vary by site, But the um, the idea here is it kind of gives you a glide path. Right. It gives you a nice a, a nice transition, pardon the pun, if you will, to to the longer economic development and diversification strategies that sometimes can take a while.
0: So Heidi, let me ask you one final question. Uh, obviously, there are a lot of communities involved and a long road going forward uh, to transition. What level of investment really is going to be necessary to get the job done?
1: Well, much more than we have now, right? So if you if you go back and you look at the level of investment by the Obama power plan, power program that I mentioned earlier, that program, when it was introduced in fiscal year 2015, you know, I don't know, maybe it was, you know, $40, dollars it, it wasn't It wasn't a lot. It was a start. That increased over the years. Um, and the two agencies that received I would say a good portion of the funding were the um the Economic Development Administration and they they reached levels of about 30 million dollars a year for their power program which became their assistance for coal communities program. The other agency that received a good chunk of of that funding was the Appalachian Regional Commission and they it, their their levels stayed pretty consistently. They I think they received about fifty million dollars a year for the life of the program. So when you add up all that investment, right? I think it's around five hundred million from from ARC. You know, it's a little bit more. What we're talking about is needing investment in the billions, right? I mean, that's what the EU has done through their Just Transition Fund. That's the level of investment that other governments are looking at, and you know, millions is is not is not what we need. It's really more in the in the billions. And the Biden um, American Jobs Plan, his infrastructure plan, um, really gets at a good start. Of course, you know, we don't know where that will go, but the level of investment for coal for coal communities in particular, in there is is much higher. It's you know anywhere from twenty to, to, to thirty billion dollars. It's a little bit difficult to tell because the um the mandate of the IWG is not just coal communities. They're looking more broadly at energy communities, right? But it's still the, the level of investment is 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 good, right? It's very good. And it's 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 along the level of of what we need. We have not had that for a number of years. And you know I was was thinking about this the issue the other day What's tough about this, ultimately, you know, and this gets back to the question that you asked me is, how do we ensure that these communities can can have a successful transition and it one of the most important things we have to do is help them plan and engage early. And this problem is, is just happening and unfolding so fast right with with COVID closures, COVID and the sort of the resulting economic uh, sort of uh, problems that we had, it caused closures across oil, coal and gas sectors to happen much more quickly. So we've just got this, this urgency now where we're trying to deal with the climate problem. And we're also trying to deal with the economic you know collapse in these places. And we don't have a lot of time, right? So I look back at the last four years, and I just think about you know, what if we had? What if we had been able to really move forward with the type of of, of investment that's being proposed now? We could be in a much different place, right? So, um, I'm really optimistic that we're 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 getting there.
0: So the communities really need the assistance as soon as possible. That's right. Heidi, thanks very much for talking.
1: Thank you, Andy. It was really nice to chat with you today.
0: Today's guest has been Heidi Binko, executive director of the Just Transition Fund. For more energy policy discussions and insights, check out the Archive of Energy Policy Now podcasts on the Climate Center for Energy Policy's website. The site also has a wealth of news, blogs, and research covering the gamut of energy and environmental policy topics. And you can get updates from the Climate Center delivered to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter on our homepage. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day so